Welcome to the Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill. Today I'm going to be talking with Mark Anthony Kay, one half of the Dark Monarchy Project, about their new release, which is Chiaroscuro, which is a hell of a, a word, and Mark will tell you all about that in a moment, but it was released October the 31st, digitally via Bandcamp, so you can find the Dark Monarchy there, and in the CDs available for pre-order now. But Mark, right now, welcome back to the show. Obviously, you are part of the show, but you are also a working musician, so it's nice to get you on talking about your music. And we're not talking about Project Gemini. We're talking about the Dark Monarchy. Um, let's jump straight in and talk about the meaning of the album title and why it's an appropriate title for the third full-length album from Dark Monarchy. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on here, Julian. I appreciate it. Uh, Chiaroscuro. Okay, well, this title was thought up by Joe. Uh, usually when we do a record, we kind of, you know, shoot ideas back and forth. And, uh, you know, we come up with maybe like six, seven of them. And then one of them, we kind of windle it down to the winner. This time, what ended up happening was Joe just came to me one time with a text and said, hey, Mark, I got an idea for a song title, a song title, for an album title. What do you think of this? And I looked at it and I'm like, wow, OK, that's a interesting word. And I go, can you elaborate on it? It was, well, it, it means uh, light and dark. It's like it's supposed to be like in a, a, the meaning is supposed to be light and darkness. Uh, apparently, it's an Italian word from what Joe tells me. Uh, and it's pretty much a very appropriate title because... What he, the reason why he wanted to pick that title was because he said that when he listened back to the album, he said that he heard a lot of light and dark in the music. There was a lot of like heavy stuff. There's a lot more sort of softer stuff, a little bit more, you know, easier, lighter piano passages, like at the beginning of a few songs and stuff like that. So there was a lot of light and dark in the music, he thought. So after he told me that, I just couldn't help but just go with it and say, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And that was really the only song title we ever came up with for the, I mean, song title, album title we ever came up with for this. So uh, I think it worked out really well. Yeah, unless you're fluent in Italian, you're not using that as a song title. Any <laughs> any which way, trying to get one's tongue around that when it's not native language. Yeah, I mean, the album is very much about light and, light and darkness. You know, there are positive and kind of darker tones, both in the music and in a lot of the lyrics that permeate throughout the album. Explain how you and Joe approached this project. As a third album, you've established a musical identity as a working partnership. What did you want to accomplish with this new album? Um, well, you know, sometimes I find that bands, when they get to this point, they sometimes overthink stuff. I just like, oh, we're in the third album, you know, the third record. What are we going to do? We, we got to be careful now and this and that. And some people overthink it. They don't want to repeat too many things or you know, they just come up with all these different elaborate ideas and they go too far away from their sort of established sound. We didn't think of anything like that. We just contacted each other and said, OK, let's start working on a new Dark Monarchy record. And we kind of went ahead like business as usual with it. Uh, our routine for writing songs is pretty simple now for us. Uh, we decide each of us to write either like, let's say, four or five songs each. And we each write 
the first, let's say, two, three minutes of a song and send it over to the individual, the other person, and he, they complete it. This routine has worked for us very well so far. So why break that routine? Um, we, we started doing this, I think, in January of this year uh, and took our time. This is the one thing that's a bit different than I think from some of the previous albums that we did is that because we each had kind of like little deadlines that we had for other things, like Joe wanted to do a solo record, I wanted to do a Project Gemini album. So we were kind of forcing ourselves to get stuff done and to get it done a little bit quicker because we wanted to have time to do the other things. But this time we just said, you know what, let's just write, take our time. When we're, when we're happy with what we have, we'll send it back to each other and we'll continue from there. And that's exactly what we did. There are still more songs from these sessions that will come out later in a, in an EP, which is something that Project uh, Project Gemini, that Dark Monarchy has done on all, all our previous albums too. We've always released a sort of two or three song EP afterwards of the songs that we had left off the album. So that's going to happen as well on this album. And this time it was probably one of the more difficult albums to select what was going to go on the record and what was not going to go on the record. So that's a good thing, I think, for people who like the Dark Monarchy, because that means that not only are you going to get a really good record, we think, but you're going to get a really good EP out of it as well. Both you and Joe, on your own, have come off albums that were concept albums. Joe's very much pure concept on the last solo album that he released, and you've just finished your trilogy of in the year 3073. Um, did you approach this wanting to not have it in any sense be a concept, or were you okay with just having that broad kind of light and darkness concept? Because, you know, that that's a concept, but it's not a concept. Yeah, I, I think that we... We didn't go in saying, but under no circumstances is, is this going to be a concept. There was no kind of discussion about it like that. But we just wanted to go in and just write a bunch of good songs because everything with us starts with the music. The lyrics always come after, right? So as long as we're happy with the music, then the lyrics come afterwards. And, you know, the the idea of the light and dark also happened in the lyrics as well. Some of the topics are heavy. Some of them are a little bit lighter in uh, approach and I'll explain that when we get to the songs uh, but it, that was completely coincidence that that happened we didn't go in and say we're going in with a light and dark theme this just sort of happened organically like naturally as it happened and you know we're, we're very happy with it like I said I think the thing that was the most important thing about this record was we took our time we did some things that were a bit different on this album from the different from from, from the other times that we did a record like for example when I did my rhythm guitars on the prior records, I would just normally do like a left-right guitar and that's it, right? And then Joe would add his stuff. This time I wanted to really put more emphasis on a more solid rhythm guitar sound. So I did a left and right guitar and then another set of left and right but with different, completely different tones and sort of blended the left and right that way, right? Just to give it a little bit more tone. And it was great for the mixing too, because if I needed something that was a little bit heavier sounding, I could blend it differently to get that sound. If I wanted it to be a little bit lighter in spots, I could re-blend it again to make it that way. So having that sort of uh, you know, palette to choose from and to use during the mixing was extremely helpful this time. You've also got some acoustic guitars in there as well, don't you, on, on this yeah. one, which um, adds that third layer 
with the guitars of when you blend two different sounding electric guitars and buttress it from underneath, sometimes with the acoustic, along with using the acoustic separately in its own focus as well. Um, what sort of guitars, I mean, were you picking out of your arsenal for this one? Were there any that you found becoming your go-to guitar and sound that you wanted to be a unifying factor throughout? Um, for, for me, this time I found that the Les Paul worked the best for it this time before i was using my sg a lot and stuff like that but this time i wanted to use the uh the, the last paul a bit more it it has the advantage at least this one does that i have the uh the 120th anniversary model that came with the coil tap split in it so if i wanted to get away from the humbucker sound and just do a coil sound like i.e like a strat or something i could just pop the switch and it gave it to me so I had a lot more, again, different palettes of sound I could use with that guitar. And I also like using my Jackson, that I have my white Jackson uh, guitar. And that one is great for solos. It has a whammy bar on it. It also has like a Jeff Beck pickup in there. So it has a totally different sound than the Les Paul. And I love Alex Lifeson. So for soloing, I love using the whammy bar, like how he does and stuff like that. And those kind of suspended sort of notations that he does. So I... I really use those two a lot. I relied relied on them a lot. And I have one acoustic guitar, which is my Yamaha guitar. And I've loved that guitar ever since I discovered that guitar. Because, I mean, it's not one of these guitars that costs like $2,000 to buy. You can go to any real music store and you can buy this for between, I think it's 300 and 500 bucks. And it just sounds fantastic. It has a plug-in pickup if you need it. But I never do that. If you, I don't know if you can see it, but I have a microphone right over there on that stand and it's like a it's like a copy of a u47 microphone and i use that to record the acoustic guitar rather than plug in and that made a lot of difference as well because it, it gave you got a lot more of the woody tone from it it isn't so in your face when you have a microphone you got a little bit of the room in there as well right so it, it really helped with getting this out i, I mean I'm, you know me. I'm kind of these guys, one of these guys who likes uh, fiddling with stuff. I'm a bit of a gear geek and a studio geek kind of guy. So every time I approach a, a new album, I'm always like, "Ooh, what am I going to do this time to, to to do something different or something new this time?" So I always try to experiment a little, new microphone placements, you know, different settings. Oh, let me use a compressor this time, going into record and not. I mean, for example, like. My favorite producer in the world, Mr. Ezrin there, he likes to record stuff and commit stuff to tape or, for example, to, to digital and not add it later, which I think is a very daring thing to do because once you have it on there, you're committed to it. But I decided to do that with some of the sounds as far as compression and EQ. I used to do it where I would just record everything kind of just blank and neutral and add everything after. But this time I, just, I wanted to go for a specific sound because in my head... I heard the acoustic guitar sounding a different, a certain way. So I just recorded it with those sounds in mind. I made them. If I need a compressor, I used it. If I needed EQ, I used it. And I committed to those sounds and put them there. And it worked a lot better because then when I was mixing, I didn't have to sit there and start going, okay, well, now i got to try to do this to it and this. It was just there. And all I had to do is just adjust the volume. And that was it. 
with uh, Ezra, and there's an obduracy of intent of when it's committed to tape or digital. It is how it is, and it is fixed in time and place because when you've got everything spread out about, well, through however many tracks, you've got mm-hmm. all the room in the world to play and go back and rethink it. But if it's on a single audio stream, that's it. That yeah. is how it is forever and ever. So it, it is ballsy, very ballsy when he does mm-hmm. that. What I like, you know, you're talking about the mic and the placement of it for the acoustics is the X factor, that ambiance in the room, uh, you know, air. You're yeah. recording air in essence, and you can't get that digitally. I mean, the digital, when you plug in an acoustic and capture it that way, you're getting a, a different sound and a different purpose. But the air really does tend and lead to it as well. And when you hit, Get, pick up some of the little elements of picking coming across it does yeah. change the character and dynamic let's talk about some of these songs you know number mm-hmm. one you lead off with fragile and it starts the album off with a beautiful piano intro it's got joe on the verses you on the chorus it it's kind of melancholy what stood out for me on this was the pulsing bass kind of driving this one around that's a very critical foundationally to this song in particular tell us about fragile well, <clears throat> Fragile was uh, one of the first songs that we wrote. I think, in fact, it was the first song that we wrote. And usually the first song is very important because we kind of get the feel of how the record's going to be based on that, you know, because whether or not, you know, people believe this or not, uh, you're very much influenced by what's going on around you at the time when you write a song, whether, whether it's what you're, what you're listening to or what's happening to you in the world around you. And... That's why sometimes records sound so vastly different for musicians, because things that are happening to them change from time to time. Now, this song is about lyrically. Now, Joe wrote the lyrics for this one. Uh, It's about, and he gave me this exact quote, so I will read it to you. Fragile is about the fragility of life, basically. A lot of it was based around the losing of my friend Mike, and I was recently having weird dreams about him recently. So... You know, there, there you have it. It's the fragility of life that he that he talked about in the lyrics, and I'm very sure that when he thought of this idea, it kind of went and reflected back to the piano. Because from what I understand, and I he could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right about this: is that that piano intro was put in, I think, nearly near the end, maybe, of the song. Like I think he kind of thought of that idea afterwards and added it at the top of the song, and it very much gives you that kind of, you know, like you said, melancholy feel to it. And, you know, when you start having dreams about lost friends and stuff like that, it can kind of, you can kind of project that with that piano playing in there. Yeah. And it's melancholy without being dark, without being depressing, you know, which is an important thing because we all experience losses in our lives and it's just part of our life journey. And, uh, you know, kind of have the closing of the eyes looking back, but you and he, you know, blend very well on that you know do you find yourself now that you're three albums in slipping into particular roles um or do you both scratch and bite to not fall into particular roles when you're working on music together it's interesting you ask that because usually when people think of uh, us vocally joe's the guy who has like the you know he has a great range of voice much broader than i have uh but before, people would always kind of associate the sort of middle range vocals to me. And then Joe would do like some of the more higher stuff and some of the more, you know, 
you know, more more complicated to to sing stuff. What ended up happening this time, is I think both of us wanted to explore the things that we weren't uh, doing before. Like Joe sings a lot of low stuff on this record, a lot lower than he did on some of these other songs, and a lot of the not he hasn't done that before on the Dark Monarchy stuff. So he's saying a lot of really low stuff, like on King of King of the Land. He does a really low thing at the beginning, and where I took a chance and you know. And this is difficult for somebody who's not a natural, well, not a natural singer, but somebody who doesn't sing normally before, like I haven't been singing for like 25 years or something like that, uh, is to sing in an upper register that's not normal for me. I did a lot of higher singing on this album, and I found that it actually worked. Once I just, you know, said to myself, you know, stop worrying about what people are going to think or stop worrying about how it's going to sound by itself. Think about how it's going to sound mixed with Joe, right? And once I caught that, got that into my mind and just let it all go and saying it, it, it turned out to really well. And, and it gave me a new voice to use on future records as well, because I know that I can harness that voice whenever I need it now and that it works. So the, this song was very important in that way. Not only was it something musically that we kind of broadened our approach on, but it also broadened us vocally as well, I thought. So let's talk about King of the Land and its uh, brooding moodiness with Joe in such a low register. That jumped out at me. But it was the first single from the album, so it's the fir first taste most people will have had uh, from this project. You know, what was it about this song in particular that lends it to the role as first single? You know, it's not the lead-off track, first single. And was it an obvious choice for you both? Well, it was an obvious choice for us once we were done mixing and we listened to it. We thought we said for sure this has got to be the song. It's the song that represents, I think, the album the best. It has a lot in there. I mean, the song is like almost nine minutes long, I think. And so it's not exactly, you know, let's put it this way. If you were to go to a record guy and say, what do you think should be the first song off this record to release? I don't think they would pick a nine minute song to release. So but we thought that it was the best representation of the record. It has a lot going to it. And one of the things that this song has that is scoured amongst the other songs too, is there's a lot of really good instrumentation pieces on this record. I think that's one thing that we really capitalized on this album was doing a lot of instrumentation parts, lots of orchestra stuff, lots of leads and stuff, lots of, uh, you know, intertwining of moods and stuff like that. And I, and I really liked the way that turned out. And there was a lot of, you know, parts that were, you know, not in the norm. Like, you know, you have a verse, you have a chorus, you have a pre-chorus, but we had a lot of little like vocal bridges in these songs too, where there was like a vocal part out of nowhere that just appeared on another part in the song. That's like, that's not a chorus, that's not a verse, it's just like another part of a song. So this really, uh, th th this really is another example of what I think is so strong in this record is that we started taking a more chance on adding different kinds of parts like that. And technically, well, the, the the lyrical message in this song, according to Joe, because he sent me his notes for this, was King of the Land is about self-loathing and trying to love yourself when you feel down. So, uh, again, another light and dark message. Not And again, it's not, you know, like, go take some razors and slit your wrists kind of thing. But, you know, everybody has their moments when they don't feel too good about themselves. And it's just, you know, a message of maybe, you know, you're not alone in that sort of thinking and that you can get out of it. You know, I think that's a pretty important message to put out because there's been a lot that's happened in this world in the last couple of years and a lot that's happening in the world now. 
it's easy to kind of get yourself lost in a negative training and not negative thinking pattern. And, it, you know, you want to have a way out of that sometime. Well, we are kings of our own brand. We advertise ourselves in everything we do and every interaction that we have. There's a lot of great lyrical lines in this one. Mad Men in the Mirror, Hole Behind Your Ribs, and the Harlequin Benches Buckle. You know, <laughs> some of those strike me as pure Joe. Um, mm -hmm. But this is the song where that blending of your two voices, when you're both singing, and there's a balance between both of your voices that really comes across beautifully. Uh, it really shows that the both of you are very complimentary when you are singing together, not just the songs where you do the verse or the chorus or the bridge or, or the whatever. This yeah. is where you you hear both of those voices coming together to, you know, almost be a third voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that's what I really enjoyed about this too. I think that those kind of situations where we had that come up really 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 came to it really showed that we have broadened ourselves as singers as well i mean joe wrote all the lyrics to these ones what what's look i don't think we've ever had songs before where we completed each other's lyrics i think we've always had uh situations where if one person started writing the lyrics for a song they would write the whole thing so uh this is again a joe written song lyrically and it, like you said, th those lines that you just mentioned are total Joe, for sure, in there. And I, I, I love it. And for me, it was a challenge to sing some of those parts because he uses sometimes words that I wouldn't use or phrases that I wouldn't use myself. And I, I love that he does that because it gives me a new challenge vocally. So th th I really like that, like that, that. The Harlequin bench thing was one of those ones where I was like, wow, that's an interesting line to use and to try to think of a harmonizing phrase for that too. So, And, and he really encourages that because he, he was telling me before that, he said that, you know, one of the things that he likes in our partnership is that I think of harmonies that he probably wouldn't think of normally. And he definitely thinks of some vocal parts that I would not think of as well. And that's the important part in a collaborative process. Joe strikes me as a sort of fellow who has a wizard book in his pocket at all times. And when a <laughs> phrase comes into his mind, he writes it down. Um, mm -hmm. because th there's a lot of stuff, but he also plays the guitar solo on this one, which, uh, seems to be te stepping a little bit more into your territory in some ways. Um, you, how does one decide who's doing what on? each song, especially when it comes to things that might be considered to be your primary areas? Well, this was my idea, actually, because I was talking to him when we were like about middle of recording. And I said to him, I go, look, I'm going to maybe start working on some solos. I go, do you want this time to play some solos on the record? And he kind of stopped for a minute and said to me, you know, this is kind of your area, isn't it? I don't, I don't want to step on your toes. I go, no, no, no. I go, if if you can think of a guitar solo or if you have an idea of a solo that you hear in your mind for the song and you think that it would be strong, then then tell me and I'll let you, you know, we'll, we'll do it that way. And that was one of the songs that he completely did all the guitar solos for. And I think that it was a good idea to do it because it, it adds, again, a different element to our music. Because up to that point, he hadn't done any guitar solos on our songs at all. And I mean, he does play guitar on his own music, so he's a competent guitar player and very good. He's, he has a great sense of melody. He has good technique too. And you know, not only is he a, is he a brilliant bass player, 
but you know it's fantastic to know that if we ever if I ever get stuck on a lead or if I don't have an if I have an idea that's not going too good and I want something else in there that I can always just turn around and say hey Joe how about you do the solo for this one yeah and, and again it changes the dynamics because it's got a different sound and feel to it so it mm -hmm. brings a different ingredient and flavor and um Traveler's Tale tell us about that one that was lyrically all me and vocally it's pretty much all me as well um this is one of those things where Joe again was very encouraging and said, listen, if you, if you have an idea for a song lyrically, then go for it and, you know, sing it all too, you know, because he goes, we don't have too much of that either. Sometimes where it's a complete vocal done by one person, we like sharing stuff and complimenting each other on songs. So this one I wrote from the perspective of back in my touring days in my band, uh, that one part of the song where he where said, uh, where I write in there, I'm trying to remember the lines off uh, about people going around and not noticing all the things that we've done in the world. Like, you know, the buildings reaching to the sky and the, the freeways built six car lanes wide and stuff like that. Like, I find that people go through life not realizing sometimes how fantastic this world is and how we've built it and some of the wonders that we've done in here. You know, I mean, that's one of the first things I noticed when I was touring with my bands was, I discovered Canada in a way that I never knew it before. And I discovered America in a way that I never knew it before in Europe, because when you're traveling, you can, you have time to look around and see things, you know, that you probably didn't know, or you only just saw through television. And we all know that television can only give you a limited view on the world. And when you go out into the world and see it for yourself, sometimes you come back with a totally different opinion of it or a different view of it. So I, the traveler's tale, is just that somebody going out in the world and discovering through his own eyes how fantastic this world is hence the light now for the from the dark right a lot of my songs were in that more light area where joe's is a little bit more on the darker side yeah stop and smell the roses is the moral mm -hmm. of the traveler's tale touch yeah. the history but that also comes back to what i perceive to be one of the difference in the songs and maybe it comes down to the different primary songwriters on them joe is very observational kind of introspective and you are a storyteller in a lot mm -hmm. of your writing that you seem to like to tell a tale and, uh, you know, maybe it's just how it comes across on these uh, selection of tracks. The Guiding Light, the bass figure. The, I mean, that is Joe That is Joe playing bass on that, correct? Because oh, Joe plays on everything. He, the, all the bass is Joe on this album. Yeah, this song for me was where the bass absolutely stood out. Um, but leading into your guitar solo... That's just spectacular. Mm. It's really, really good. And again, another one with very good storytelling um, as part of the song. So tell us about The Guiding Light. The Guiding Light, it was one of the songs that I started with and Joe completed. Um, I love those kind of grandiose drum intros. Whenever you hear a song like that in the Dark Monarchy, chances are I'm the one who started that. Uh, and I make no bones about that. I love those kinds of intros. So... Uh, that had to be in there. Uh, and Joe has some really good orchestration as well. I was really happy with the orchestration in this song. It really added to the kind of storytelling that I was wanted to put in there. And this song, lyrically, is about my love of those kind of songs. You know, because I love those kind of, uh, you know, 
songwriting approaches that you hear from the bands in the 70s where they would write about characters and times back in, you know, like the medieval times and stuff like that. So when I started writing it, that 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 was the first thing that entered my head when I started listening back to the music and had my pen in my hand and my mic in front of me thinking, what am I going to write about? And then, you know, the first thing long ago when Magic Ruled the Land was the first line that came out of my mouth. I was like, ooh, okay, I'm onto something here. And it's... I'm not thinking of any kind of specific story here. I'm just generalizing in the sense that this is the kind of songs that I grew up with and really loved. You know, Dio, when he starts talking about wishing wells and magic mountains and man on the silver mountain and stuff like that. Like those are the kind of songs I grew up and I really enjoyed because you can, you can see them when you're hearing them sing about it, you know? And this was just kind of my tip of the hat and my homage, I guess, to like, this kind of songwriting and I really wanted to just write a song like that you know just to talk about those kind of characters and you know whenever I listen to it on headphones I can just see this guy on the mountain and you know raising his hands and rain falling down when he chants something right you know and the, the main thing I wanted to do about this as well and maybe this is my optimistic nature is I didn't want this guy to be a, a bad character. I wanted him to be a positive figure. And that's why I put in there that, you know, people were awaiting him to come to their markets and they were always looking forward to seeing him because he was such a positive figure in the community and he always watched over the people of the lands, right? So I, that, that was that was one of the things I wanted to keep as well was that that was another light message there, you know? Nice. You know, and again, it's, it, it definitely shows it's got inspiration and influences from elsewhere, but it strongly has an identity of its own. And that's probably one of the most important things on listening to music is that it's got its own character. And that's what project, uh, <laughs> sorry, flipping between okay. the two, um, dark monarchy does very well in taking both of those things, uh, very well together. The song, the album concludes with one way out. Great closing mm -hmm. track, uh, you know, very perfect sequence. Why don't you let us know about One Way Out? This one I, I really like. This is this is one of Joe's uh, songs that he started off with. And that just that intro at the beginning, I remember, I'll never forget when I downloaded his pieces when he sent them to me. And that do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do at the top there, I was like, ooh, this is kind of cool. Because he had a really nice, clean guitar sound for that when he sent it to me. I was like, I gotta, I gotta recreate that, and I, and I did my best to make it exactly as he kind of sent it. Um, I, I really like this song, and this is one of those examples too where Joe had a very specific thing in mind on guitar as well, to the point of where he sent me a tablature of how he wanted the guitar to be played in that, in, a, in that one part, and I have no problem with that. If you have a certain thing that you want in the song. I'm all for it, you know, because I, I, I know that if I was to send something to him and say, listen, I want a piece to sound like this, he would definitely do it as well. So we're very good in keeping each other's visions alive. Um, I, I love it. It's so catchy. The, the, the verse parts are really good. The, 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 again, the solo sections are fantastic. And one of the things I think that Joe did brilliantly well on this was the idea of how we constructed the ending, how it dropped back to that beginning and it started to kind of slow down and morph out into that really odd piano, the children's piano thing almost at the end. And it just slowed right down, almost like a little tip of the hat to 
1974 version of Black Diamond, you know, where it kind of slows down and slows right down. But we didn't drag it out as long as they did on the Kiss album. But uh, I, I really, really like that sort of ending to it. And lyrically, this is Joe again. Lyrically, this is Joe. This is totally yeah. Joe. You can tell that from we sell our houses just to fill our cars, you know, and <laughs> all, all throughout it, uh, big wigs, commercial suits. I mean, it really is, a, again, um, from my perception, coming straight out of his wheelhouse. And I can't wait to see what he's writing next year after this winter in the U.K., yeah, because basically all he sent me when I asked him just to give me a little bit about each song, he said, one way out is just about the way the world is. Shit, basically. So that, that, there you have it. Very simple and easy to, you know, get across message. And, you know, you just, you just po pointed out a very important thing. When we talk about how the world around us influences us lyrically and musically, you know, Joe's going through a period there where it's probably difficult with, with the Brexit situation and with, you know, just the way things are in, in England in general. I mean, another friend of ours that we have, a mutual friend, me and you, is David Donnelly. And I was just the other day talking with him on Skype, and he was telling me about how Brexit has really screwed up things for musicians there. How you're only allowed to work they in... Can't the can't tour. Yeah they, yeah, they can only go for a certain amount of days. And then they can't do it. And, and, and it's affected a lot of big musicians there where he told me a story of a girl, a guy, drum, a drummer who works for this band. I think it's Anastasia. He think he's, I think he said where he was with this girl for 12 years touring with her worldwide. And he got informed by management that they can't go and he can't go do the tour because he had done some things before in Europe. So it, it now disallowed him to go back into the into Europe to play. So. This is this is not a good thing. I mean, you're taking like money out of people's pockets doing this. So, you know, and while Joe isn't exactly like a, you know, long-term touring musician, there are many things I'm sure that the situation in England is affecting him as well in other ways. So, it's it's always interesting to read his lyrics because I kind of got a pulse of what's going on in, you know, his neck of the woods. Well, now that you're alone in Europe and there's the EU and then there's Britain. You, you've left the safety net of partnership um, and everything that you were sold on as being the justification for leaving that um, turns out to have been a lie. So mm -hmm. I, I, I get it and we don't want to get bogged down in those politics, but it does come it does come through in the perception um, yeah. and in the lyrics because that is the reality of everyday life now for many people in Britain who are you know facing, fears of how to heat their homes and yeah. how to pay their groceries so you are literally selling your houses to fill your cars and, and it, it, it's it's bang on but it's also not negative while mm. it is biting without any doubt and there are biting lyrics throughout that joe writes none of it comes across as bitter or angry um again we come back to that word we started with melancholy mm -hmm. yeah Absolutely. And, you know, what I like about Joe's lyrics, too, is that there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great honesty about it. You know, sometimes people, when you write lyrics, and I'm, I might be guilty about this sometimes, is you write a line or two, and you read it back to yourself, and you're like, ooh, that's good. But is it too 
you know, will it will it raise too many eyebrows or will it will it make too many people upset or pissed off? Joe doesn't. I don't think he has that in him. I think he's just, you know, this is how I feel. I'm going to write it down. And that's that. <clears throat> and I and I really respect him about that, that he that he does that. So, and yes, it, some some of them have me going, ooh, that's harsh, you know, but yeah. so art should be harsh. Art should be jagged. It shouldn't be self-censored. Get the mess. You got a message? Put it out there. Don't say, oh, is that going to hurt someone's feelings? It's your art. Yes, it should. It should. If someone's getting mad, they're having an emotional response to your music and your lyrics. And I think that's something to strive for. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're 100% correct with that. So that's one thing that I think I've kind of learned from him as well. Like, this is one thing I love about this partnership is that we always seem to learn things from each other lyrically or musically. You know, there's been many times where I've looked at something that he's done uh, musically with some of his orchestrations because I had the benefit of getting these things in individual uh, individual tracks. So I can hear, oh, okay, that's what he did here and that's what he did there. And then to mix it all together, you, you learn a lot that way. Like, oh, okay, that's a good idea for how to make a good or orchestra part. Or here, I like the way he recorded his bass there, you know. So it, it's a very uh, beneficial partnership for both of us we've learned a lot from each other and I, i'm looking forward to the next dark monarchy record already i mean we, we haven't even we've just put this one out but you know because it went so well and it's being responded to so so well i mean a lot of people have gotten this right out of the gate and i have to want to thank people already who have bought this and supported it there's been a lot of digital buys and a lot of cds ordered already which is which is good you know i mean this is it's what you hope for i mean we're not going in with any illusions of you know getting a gold album or anything but you know i i i wanted to do well and i want people to listen to the music and enjoy it and even better if they have a response to it that they they notice something and hit re rewind what did he say you know what was he saying <laughs> yeah want to read the lyrics along with it <laughs> so what is your timeline for the rest of the year obviously it's available digitally today for anyone who wants to listen to it they go over to the dark monarchy on Bandcamp, check it out they can order the cd cds due in january hopefully in january um 2023 correct T um supply chains willing yes uh i put that down in the sense that I think that that's also being a little cautious. I mean, I know that when I talk to train records, if I was to give them the artwork, all of it, let's say next week, I think I might even get it well in early in December. So the, their turnaround time for CDs is not very long right now, but that could change again too. But I'm not too worried about that. You know, I just put that there to be kind of like to give myself a little bit of a safety net there. For that, but it, it's it's good. I, I think that the CDs uh, will be will be uh will be will be done sooner than than later. Uh, as for the rest of the year, um, I'm still waiting on the Project Gemini vinyl to come out finally, and that should be here hopefully by Christmas. They keep saying I'm, first he told me the end of November, then he's saying no later than the, the Christmas time. So I really hope it comes out before the end of the year because. Lots of people have been waiting for it and lots of people have been very patient. And again, I thank everybody for your patience. Uh, you know, it's not it's out of my hands, the waiting part of this. So, uh, but, you know, hopefully it'll be done very, very soon. It is what it is. And again, it's out of your hands and at least you communicate every step along the way. Do mm -hmm. you master 
separately for digital release and then for CD, or is it essentially the same master? Um, I, I do a, a teensy bit of a different thing for the for the CD. Uh, for the for the digital, uh, I do one master, but for the CD, I find that I sort of don't hit it as hard. I I tend I tend not to squash things. I really try not to over limit stuff and over compress stuff. But uh, on the digital end of things, you know, there's a lot of people that listen to digital that are of the younger age group. That are right? deaf. Yeah. So basically, they the louder, the better for them. So I kind of try to make that a little bit louder for them. But for the, for the uh, CD people and for the CD in general, I tend to back it down a little bit and make sure that when I recheck my waveforms that there's no, you know, you know that 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 cut at the top that shows that it was completely snapped off at the top there uh i like seeing dynamics in my waveforms and stuff like that no audio sausage here and just keep it very well done uh you know and somebody kept asking about if there's going to be a dark monarchy vinyl release ever and i'd really love to do that that's something that we enjoy are going to talk about for next year that maybe we will start and release some of our stuff on vinyl. I think it's kind of overdue. And I'm finding that the numbers are starting to get a lot better for Dark Monarchy stuff now. So it might be the time to uh, go back and maybe release the debut on vinyl and then do All Roads Lead to Rome and then this one. Very good. Well, leave the clipping to hedges, not waveforms. Yes. Mark Anthony K, I wish you and Joe the best of success with the new album. It's a fantastic 40 minutes of fun listening that I'm sure many people will enjoy. So thanks a lot for joining me today. You're very welcome, Julian. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us, like us, or even leave us a review. You can find us and join the conversation on Facebook. <laughs>